Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Coronavirus is Here Again episode of Poddywood, the podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Uh, the barely here Andrew Roger Carson still, would you believe, suffering with this dumb kind of virus cold thing that is not coronavirus. No. After five weeks. Mm-hmm. My entire... I've missed out all of November, basically. Well, it's going to be weird listening to the show, really, because we recorded all our interviews up front. <laughs> when then... you sounded kind of okay. Yes, so... To continuity a bit. But, you know, <laughs> hey. It's one of them things, isn't it? It could have been worse, though, because you could have sounded absolutely wretched, and you've sounded all right throughout most of it, and I've cut out a lot of coughs and splutterings and other oh, unmentionables. Yeah. You wait till you get to the Brian Krause episode. I do not know how I was coping. I was sweating. I was like trying not to cough down the microphone. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be one in the background somewhere. I was rough, and I can't believe how much fun we actually had. That's coming in two weeks, by the way. Yes, in two weeks, in December, which is going to be good because we, we've got a kind of a, a very interesting December coming up, starting with next week. Yes, call, next, next week. Call that be... payback, you Judas. <laughs> yeah, okay. Do you want to explain to the ladies and gentlemen why I'm a Judas? You're a Judas because you sent me a message right when I was feeling at my very worst just to say, I've got a bit of a confession to make. I went to see Ghostbusters Afterlife with a mate. It started out as drinks and then the the whole it was kind of early You're not enough a cheating in the day. husband you don't have to give that kind of bloody response no it was, it, day, start, it was a... it start... all right then it was a massive betrayal but it wasn't intended to be a massive betrayal it was originally just intended to yeah we'll meet up we'll have a few drinks we'll have a we'll have a bite to eat and then after like about the third pint the idea of going to see ghostbusters came out and it was like uh okay because the cinema was just down the road so yeah and what makes the story even more especially tragic, as I've just kind of told him before we went onto the air, is the fact that I turned down the opportunity to see it twice because we were going to go and see it. Yeah. So no, I haven't seen it yet. And now I don't want to because it's forever just besmirched with betrayal. So that was uh that was the uh the straw that broke the uh the camel's back on that one. Yes. So no, you're not you're not forgiven, and I'm not forgetting it either. No. So if if you show up late for shoot day, you're going to be in twice as much shit. Yes, I'm going to be in. I'm going to be in an awful lot of trouble. Uh, yes, just like Michael Shannon. Ah, yes. Oh. Well, in relation to this, for those of you who listened to the absolutely amazing Ellen Deben episode last week, yep, which has been very well received by everyone. Uh, what's in the box from last week ended up being Jeff Nichols' debut movie, Shotgun Stories, of which Steve had to go and watch last night. Did you yes. watch it last night, Steve? I did watch it last night, yes. It's 2007 story, starring Michael Shannon uh, as one of six brothers, two sets of uh, of brothers 
who all share the same father but are now kind of estranged after the father remarried and the father dies and his funeral is the catalyst to lots of uh, heartache and uh, and violence between the two families uh it's uh, in arkansas and is that the rust belt or is that the because you've got the rust belt and you've got the dust bowl which which one is it <laughs> i can't remember i think it's the rust belt but if we're rust wrong belt. please let us know yeah um all i do know is that um this was one of the shorter movies that we've had in probably quite some time because a lot of the movies that we've, which we've been having recently that have been coming out of the box have all been over the two hour mark and i'm very glad that this wasn't because this was an hour and a half of uh depressing people doing depressing things to other depressing people in a depressing setting it is a movie which at its very basic premise should have been something far better than what is actually here. I didn't enjoy it. I can't even say that I didn't enjoy the performances because realistically there weren't much in the way of an actual performance. Nobody seemed to be doing any kind of emoting. Everyone seemed to have just had their facial muscles numbed before shooting. No one cracks a smile. No one scowls. No one frowns. Everyone just talks like this. Hey, you okay? Yep. Are you okay? Long pause. (laughs) Yep. And the whole thing plays out with little moments which should have taken much bigger impact. Like the like the the tensions between the two families should have built up a bit more, and I suppose you could say in some respects it's a little bit more realistic because passions just tend to flare up and burn out just as quickly as they uh, as they start. But this was just this was just an hour and a half of just flatness for me, and plot lines that go nowhere. Like one of the brothers is trying to teach basketball, that doesn't go anywhere. It it just is something that he does throughout the movie. That's it. you kind of thinking, well, why was this in here in the first place? Uh, Michael Shannon, we know he can act. We know that he can put a passion on because you can say whatever you wanted about Man of Steel, but at least he was leaning into the skid with General Zod. And he's also done roles in the past where he's been able to emote and be kind of happy and joyful. If anyone's seen the end of um, Groundhog Day, He's the guy that gets the tickets for WrestleMania with his new bride. Yeah. You know, he's emotive. He's happy. Nothing in this. Everything is just so flat. The delivery on everyone is so flat. The facial expressions are so flat. The only time that there's any kind, anything even remotely approaching an emotional response is right at the very end when they kind of half crack a smile. And it doesn't really help that the setting itself, and I I don't exactly know how close this is to people that are living in that part of the world, is just one of absolute depression where they seem to have squeezed in every single redneck stereotype possible. You know, there's the deadbeat that lives in the backyard. There's the deadbeat that lives in the van. There's the rich parent of, uh, of his child, who coincidentally I actually thought looked like your kid, although that might oh, just be like you. the spiky blonde hair. Um, so, so basically, what you're saying is my kid is just like all of these backwards, redneck, stereotypical people. I, I don't know if I should actually say that's quite offensive. No, I'm saying that your kid has blonde, spiky hair. Fair enough. So it couldn't just be like any other kid. 
with blonde spaggy hair and no. to just be my kid while you're denigrating the people of this area. They look, I'm not denigrating the actual people of the area. I'm denigrating the people of the area in this movie. Okay, well, with it being Jeff Nichols, I mean, this was his first movie. And yes, Jeff's, Jeff Nichols is from that area. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen other movies of his, like Take Shelter or Midnight Special or Mud or even Loving as well, which came out the other year, they're all very, I guess you could class them as authentic. Right? They're very authentic movies. And this is a very authentic for its kind of area, which is why him and Michael Shannon work together a lot. Uh, especially through Take Shelter and Midnight Special. Uh, they're kind of like the John Carpenter-Kurt Russell relationship. They work in a lot of movies together. Uh, and this kind of being his first movie, it really kind of established that tone of Jeff Nichols. You probably won't like the other films, but you're probably going to be sad to know that they do go in the box as well. So it, it might be an interesting take where some of them you might just discover that you like them. Some of them you might not. I'm hoping that he kind of gets better because i did do remember seeing the trailers for midnight special and it kind of appealed to the sci-fi nerd in me but with with this it's just like that like there's one scene where two of the brothers all all three of like the main brothers are called kid boy and son you know that probably one of the others is called lad um but yeah there's one there's one scene where two of them are sat down on a bench and then it cuts and they're stood up on the basketball court and then they go back and sit down on the bench. What What is that adding? It adds nothing apart from to break up a conversation between two people. Well, maybe that was why they did it. Ugh. Right, well, I'm going to go on the defensive on it because I do like Jeff Nichols and I do like his stuff. I do love the, the low-key independent stuff, which is not everyone's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. But it, it is mine because I really do appreciate that patience uh, to actually... You know, carve out a movie of this type from you know very, relative very little. I think the budget for this movie was really small. I think it was only a quarter of a million that mm. they made the movie for uh, for a first time director, uh, which is encouraging. No, it's good going on that amount. I will give it credit there. Yeah, but I'm I'm going to give the fact that I really like the direction. I really like the script as well. I, I like it because it is very away from. The Hollywood filmmaking style, and it's the kind of movie that that really draws you in, like David Lowery's movies as well. Uh, even though he did do Pete's Dragon, which was kind of bizarre to see him do, but he Wait, was that all that stuff up. Was that the live action one that came out about? Yes. Oh god, that was crap. See what I mean? <laughs> but but at the end of the day, I'm I'm guaranteed that the the high point of what's in the box is we actually find a movie that you do actually like. No, no, we've had lots of movies that I've liked. Name one. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. That was like episode two. Yeah, well, I still liked it. (laughs) Oh, I liked the talented Mr. Ripley the other week. I thought he was a little bit long, but I really enjoyed it. You know? Um, We've got your feeling on shotgun stories, but now we've got to get some feeling on some anniversaries. And if you really want one of the worst films you could ever see, you've got it in this one, baby. Watch them again, all of the time. Oh, we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. That does not bode well. The fact that you are now saying that we're going to be talking about one of the worst films that's ever made. Are we talking about it now, or is this going to be the last one? Uh, now. Well, we're going to start off with it. Oh, 
Okay. Just strap uh, yourself in, folks. You know, there's been times where I've been uh, disappointed in um, going to see a sequel, even more so, apparently, than not going to see a sequel, Steve. But the one that got me was 25 years ago this week, Crow City of Angels. Oh, shit. Yeah. I take it you've seen this. Yeah. I um I remember it being terrible and green. <laughs> yes. Very green. This the smokiest movie this side of Dante's Peak. So it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. I'm I'm not gonna hold back and I do not hold the blame on the director, Tim Pope, who was mainly a music video director and a very good one, I will add. A very good music video director. And uh, the screenwriter was David S. Goya. You know who David S. Goya is? Yes. Um, he was behind the Blade trilogy and the Dark Knight films, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He yes. was He was the writer and he was the director of Blade Trinity. Yes. Poor guy. But, um, you know, they kind of disowned the film afterwards, which is probably the smartest move. But it, it wasn't their fault. And the main reason why. All right, I mean, this was a Miramax movie. And the original agreement was um, they don't want to make a movie like the first one, you know, so they want to do it very different and veer away from it and, you know, not damage the the reputation of the first movie in respect of Brandon Lee. Um, so when it came time to edit the movie, Miramax suddenly were like, oh, no, 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 we're, we're going to actually edit this to resemble the first movie in every way. <laughs> and they ended up cutting... 20 feet of film from this movie. 20 feet of film. So naturally, Tim Pope and David S. Goya were not impressed, not happy, obviously didn't have the power to challenge it. Obviously, I'm saying they probably didn't have creative control in their contract, so they disowned the movie. And what was left was this horrible, murky, dumpster fire, tesk, why of a movie and I went to see it and I was like this is horrible to look at it's smoke it's green it's hip hop it's it's Thomas Jane jerking himself off in a chair it's wait was that Thomas Jane uh, it was Thomas Jane poor guy I'm I'm, I'm so glad he, he he was probably the only one who's really climbed out of this movie but you had, um, let's see, of the names that you can remember. So I think Vincent Perez, whose mm-hmm. um, English wasn't his first language and acting was obviously not his first talent, uh, played the role of, uh, I can't even remember what the name of the character was, but the crow. Uh, uh, there were scenes when I watched this film and I was, uh, I remember it being a case where I was watching it in the cinema and my Hand was over my face, and I was just kind of looking through like the gap in your fingers because it was like, oh, this is horrible. And the only good thing about it was the fact that it was 80 minutes long, so you got out of there a lot quicker. What a horrible memory to kind of bring up this week. So 25 years ago, I, I spent that amount of money uh, to see this. And the worst thing is, I mean, people have said it's the best of the Crow sequels. Well, that's not really saying much because... You had the Crow Salvation that Kirsten Dunst in it, which is why probably anyone ever remembers 
uh, the Crow Salvation if they do, and no one's seen it. I've I've never met a person who's actually seen that. No, I haven't. There was the Crow Wicked Prayer, who which was directed by a friend of mine, Lance Mungia, and um, I've got to admit, at least they went a separate way with that, you know, and and you had like the the who's who of comic con actors in it now. So you had like Tara Reed, Edward Furlong. I was going to uh, say, I knew he was in one of them. You know, and to be honest, I always thought that was better because it was not a rip-off of the other Crow movies. But the Crow City of Angels, oh, it's horrible to watch. All right. You also really, really hated Rambo Last Blood because we, we... I remember coming oh, out oh, of Steve. that. No, st- stop this. No, no, no. Don't, don't bring that to, up. I want to know which of these two horrible sequels is the one which you hate the most. Oh. Because you were um, ripping into Rambo, something chronic when we left that cinema. It's going to... Un- it, it's really going to make the review I just did of the Crow City of Angels seem pretty invalid by saying that Rambo Last Blood was worse. And it is. It, I, I, st- I still cannot get over and And they've released another version of Rambo Last Blood where they've put... A new beginning on it where he's actually seen pe- saving people of ethnic variety. Oh god! <laughs> and it's like, wow, bit late on that. <laughs> you, you've pretty much already buried yourselves. But it's like, well, you can't cast him as a hero now that he's just gone on a Mexican murderer's rampage. <laughs> you know, if anything, it makes it even worse. Is there a new character that just kind of wanders around going, "No, me need more lemon pledge." No, <laughs> no, but my god, yeah, yeah I, I, they've said oh, you know, I should watch it again with this new beginning. I'm like, no, no, you've explained to me what the new beginning is, it does not help in any way, shape, or form. What I had to sit through, if anything, it does make it worse because now he's, he's a bloody hypocrite, <laughs> yeah, pretty much because it. Uh, yeah, we could get we could get into this, but that, that was a very very painful cinematic experience for you. I know. And, and you know what? Out there, there is actually the footage when we did do a tester episode of Pottywood a couple of years ago, the day after we went yeah. to see Rambo: Last Blood. And I think we may release that as a special one week. I think I've still got the audio for that somewhere because we we did we tried to record a couple of episodes yes. and we ended up having just like a major crash on the, the hardware that I was using to store it on, which doesn't happen now because yes. I've just got backups well, and backups. The good news well, is, Steve, it is in our Dropbox because I, I found it. Ah. It is in the Dropbox folder. But yes, because it's great because I managed to seek it straight into The Last Jedi and then the last half of that com- that episode is Steve <laughs> venting spleen like you would not believe it. It's the greatest ah. trigger word I have. All I have to say to get him in a bad mood is just say, Last Jedi. I'm pissed off already, and you've only just mentioned it. And yeah. Um, right, yeah. But tw- 25 years ago, the Crow City of Angels was shut onto us. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I can find any single person who liked that movie. I mean, to be honest, I, I did like the soundtrack though. I got the soundtrack as a freebie, and um, I've got to admit, the soundtrack was actually really good because that was the kind of music I was into at the time. Um, but it's just the same that it's tapped onto this really horrible, horrible movie. Um, that was just a, a car crash. It really was. So, okay. Anyway. What's next? 
Please say it's something a bit more positive. It is, actually. Um, 30 years ago this week, Steve, Point Break was released. Point Break! Point Break. The most macho movie to be directed by a female action director. Yes. Uh, at that time, Catherine Bigelow, uh, who just, she hits it out of the park every time. I don't think I've ever seen a bad Catherine Bigelow movie. Uh, everything she's done, uh, Blue Steel, Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, um, Strange Days. Uh, I love Strange Days, but her movies are just absolutely amazing. She's clued in, and it's a shame she just does not direct as much as other directors do. I think probably the only thing that she probably regrets doing is James Cameron. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I, that was low-hanging fruit. I do apologize for that one. Yeah. That was terrible. It's not like I'm going to get a cast in Avatar 5 or whatever, so whatever. Do you remember the biggest thing about Point Break when it came out was like the women couldn't choose between Patrick and Keanu. Mm. Like Patrick Swayze and Keanu, who was like the hottest. And yeah. It was like... You had kind of like more of the, the suave, slightly older, more world experienced traveler in Patrick Swayze and then the, the young, youthful, boyish looks of Keanu. Yeah. yeah, apart from his role in Bill and Ted, was this not the perfect vehicle for Keanu Reeves? It's like you've just got to play this um, F- young FBI agent going undercover as like a dude surfer. And it's like, we buy it. He was kind of duty in um, Parenthood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I almost forgot he was in that. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I, I love about this movie, and I haven't seen it in a while. But just looking back on it, I did a conversation about this with someone recently. The amount of practical stunt work that was done in that movie. Mm. Right? Which, you know, Patrick Swayze did all his own stuff. Mm-hmm. He did, did he, all his own skydiving. Didn't he learn to actually skydive for this? Or did he already know to do it beforehand? I think he learned it for the movie and then just ended up carrying on doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he got a lot of love for it. So all those skydiving scenes, you're actually seeing Patrick Swayze doing the... I mean, Patrick Swayze, if you've seen the documentary, I Am Patrick Swayze, uh, what an amazing guy he was. I mean, he was fully dedicated to every single thing he did. He had a real zen lifestyle, which kind of fits his character in this film. I think he said this was the one film that he was very most connected with a character. You know, that that it was a very same ideology that he had with it. Mm -hmm. And when you kind of match this up, with that freaking atrocious remake that they made a couple of years ago. And if you forgot about it or didn't realize it was made, you can be forgiven. I had actually forgotten they made a remake, yeah. Yeah, and it's atrocious. Uh, it is one of those movies that just doesn't need to exist. I mean, they, they had a sequel planned for years on Point Break. They just never pulled the trigger on it. Then it got too late, and I think... The estimated budget was way too much or something like that. Uh, and I would rather have seen that than... As, as soon as I saw the trailer for that remake of uh, Point Break, I was like, this is not going to go well. And it didn't. It, it flopped. Uh, it was forgotten about almost instantly. And it, it kind of deserved to be... You could have just steered away from it being called Point Break and called it something else. You might have had at least a bit of a chance. And I think it was it was what we basically call now 
GoPro filmmaking, right? <laughs> and it it was done for the benefit of people who maybe would go and see it on a big screen and all that, and are kind of in love with this like GoPro approach of shooting all of these scenes and. Mm. You know, I suppose in 3D, it probably looked good, but you could go and watch a documentary like Sunshine Superman and really enjoy that kind of stuff. Or, or what was it? The Art of Flight, I think it was. That was the one that was about snowboarders. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's got some and it'd be good, actually, stuff. because uh, in not too long, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Lucy Walker on, who directed The Crash Reveal, um, which was a documentary about the uh, snowboarding rivalry, uh, which is going to be a, an awesome show to talk about that on. I bet she's seen Point Break, and I'll ask her because <laughs> oh. uh, she she seems to do a lot of documentaries on stuff like that. But um, yeah, Point Break, uh, it, it's not a critically loved film, but it is a major fan favorite movie. Uh, I really like it. You know, I, I've still got a fondness uh, for Point Break after all of these years. I think it reminds me of a very more innocent time in my filmmaking where any movie seemed cool, and then you kind of watch them thirty years later and think. I hate my life. <laughs> I hate my growing up. But Point Break is one of those movies that really just, it, it survives. And it had the red hot chili peppers in it. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. And that house raid that they do is brilliant. Uh, when they, they, the FBI like storms the house of the red hot chili peppers. And I think it's one of the best um it's it's one of the best house raid scenes I think I've ever seen, as yeah. well as the chase of Patrick Swayze, you know, through all the houses and stuff like that. It's brilliantly done, very frenetic. Still holds up to this tale of it. So okay, so that's a movie that you detest and a movie that you love. So I think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good balance for this week, don't you think? Yeah, it's it's a good balance, I guess. Um, next week. Uh, oh, by the way. <laughs> Uh, remember uh, one episode uh, not so long ago when I said the new Resident Evil movie looked absolutely terrible? Yes. It seems the world agrees. 23% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, well, I guess that means it won't be showing up in what's in the box then, doesn't it? No, it will not. What a pity uh, that is. It, it can hold out for anniversaries in 10 years. <laughs> no. And I'll, I'll say the exact same thing. Ah. <sighs> Anyway, um, we have a guest waiting for us yes. two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so People sh- break shatter the illusion that they are actually listening to us. So let's hop uh, into the Bodywood time machine and bring her out. Well, for our guest this week, we've travelled all the way to Oslo, Norway, to talk with an extremely talented actress who's had a world-travelled career. It's seen her take on everything from respected video game characters, iconic horror franchises, and even a turn as a Marvel villain. She started her career in dance ballet modeling, even ranking in Maxim's 100 Sexiest Women. She has appeared in many cult films such as Lake Placid, Disturbing Behavior, Me, Myself and Irene, blockbusters such as Alpha and Percy Jackson, video game transfers, which is Steve's area, such as Blood Rain and Dead or Alive, and, of course, as Typhoid in Marvel's Electra, a movie that got her nominated for Best Kiss with Jennifer Garner at the MTV Movie Awards, which beat my Best Kiss with Steve. So, currently, she is training for her career behind the camera in Norway, and it's a huge pleasure to have Natasha Mouth join us at Pottywood today. Natasha, hi, how are you? 
Hi, how are you? Now that wasn't the complete script, was it, Andy? <laughs> no, I, I did. I did try so many times to say hi. How are you in your native language? Hi, Vurangorda, Nadai. See, it would have been wrong. It would have been wrong. That's what that's what Google Translate does. It just lies. I hate the internet. Yeah, yeah but it just would have been fun to see you stumble. It would have. I would have got you to edit it out anyway, and I just would have replaced it with Natasha's voice saying it, so it, it makes it sound like I've got range. Well, Natasha, <laughs> it's so great to catch up with you again. And right now you're in the midst of transferring your skills to behind the camera by you're going to film school there in Norway to become a director, I believe, which is just amazing. I commend you on taking that big step. How are things going with it? You know, first of all, the teachers are great. And I really do enjoy going to school again and learning from the other side of the camera. Like, there are things that you learn as an actor when you're in front of the camera. And the perception of what is going on is very different than when you're behind the camera and you're the crew. And so now I'm learning everybody's roles from lighting to camera work, sound, editing, um, directing, and producing. So we're learning all of those things at the same time. And uh, next year we specialize ourselves in one of them. And what what's interesting is that I've intuitively learned a lot through being an actor. However, I find it so fascinating and so enriching learning all the other things behind the camera. I find it actually more fun and creative than acting itself. And the things that I don't like about studying is that I'm studying with a lot of young people and I've realized how life has progressed and how that generation that I'm studying with, um, how skilled they are and how much more they know about technology, you know. So I'm like this old dinosaur working with like these <laughs> spring chickens that know everything about everything. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, <laughs> you know, so there's like I'm the one who finds myself in the catching up area. It's a definite twist, isn't it, when you go behind the camera? Because I am... Um put on a play that I wrote many, many years ago and just sitting in that casting chair, for example, seeing everyone come in, it's very strange. So there's must be so much that you're picking up that you weren't aware of before. Oh, definitely. You know, I just have so much more respect and understanding for, for everyone on set, what they go through, what they do, what they have to prepare, uh, the amount of details and work that goes behind everything what the organization everyone must figure out together mm. uh, the shot list to timing how long do you think it will take to time everything how many days do you need how many hours what do you need to bring on set what props like there's just so many things that you have to think about and then uh and then, you know, working with the actors, like, you know, as a director, you got to figure out 
how do you get the actors to do what you need them to do? And then how does everyone get along? How do you work together as a group without getting on people's nerves, without <laughs> stepping over the boundaries, you know, set etiquette? You know, all these things are taken for granted when you're an actor. Um, for example, I know set etiquette, like kind of where the boundaries are, but you really need to learn those things when you're working as a unit. It's, it's just super fascinating. I really am enjoying myself at school again. Well, okay. How is the Norwegian movie scene these days? Um, is production and the Institute of Filming still going strong in the country? Stronger than ever. I, I find it it is expanding and Netflix thanks to Netflix. Oh yeah. It's made everything more possible. The Norwegian talent as filmmakers, it's it's getting out there into the world. And I also think that they're catching up. I remember in the nineties I wanted to do acting, but I didn't want to be acting in Norway because the style of acting was so different than what I liked for television and film. And they've caught up now. They, they've really become great actors in this country. They're, they still have a little ways to go, I believe. But Norwegians as a culture, they are very thorough and they study very hard. And so I find that they're very advanced in the technical areas. Mm -hmm. And they're very structured, which is very needed to be creative, is, is finding that structure to work through and... They have that down. Yeah, but you know, America is like the Harvard University of filmmaking. And uh, Netflix, I think, and other platforms and the world becoming more of this one force in filmmaking uh, is just raising everybody's standards. Yeah, definitely. And how have you found the Norwegian scene? Has it, has it welcomed you back from Hollywood? Obviously, you come back to the country with a wealth of experience already within Hollywood. So has mm -hmm. it been very receptive for you when you've come back? You know, Norway, it has this thing called the Jantelov, and they're quite skeptical towards Norwegians that go into the world and then they come back to Norway. They Sometimes they have like this, oh, don't think you are better than us because <laughs> you made it in America. You know, so they have that thing and they have a lot of judgments because they're very proud I uh, have not really tried to get into the acting scene in Norway at all because um, instead of agents calling the casting directors and getting you an audition, the actor has to do that here. So you have these actors that call the agents. No, they call the casting directors a lot. And you're supposed to kind of like bug them on your own. And I, I, it's just not my personality to sell myself like that. I like the system in America a lot better, in Canada a lot better, mm. where you have an agent who gets you the audition, not you're the actor getting yourself the audition. So, no, I, I, I just don't really like doing that. I don't find that that is how it's supposed to be. Yet it is like that here because the industry is a lot smaller. I, don't, I, I really don't understand why they don't have the agents do it. I can kind of see the positive side of that because then you've got a more of a connection between the actors and the directors. But yeah, I, it, it is. It does sound a bit strange. I mean, I I don't like picking up the phone and going, "Can I have an audition? Can I? You know, can I? 
you know, I just, no, thank you. <laughs> so, I just don't want to do that. It's just weird. So that, that is my honest opinion. And, and whether people here in Norway like to hear it or not, I just think the agent should be doing that. <laughs> it's, it's a very good point. So was acting always on the agenda for you when you were young? Obviously, you started out, from what I hear, with a focus on dance schools and musical theatre, which saw you move to Scotland and then London. But at a young age, was it always kind of on the agenda for you? Um, you know, kind of yes, kind of no. Um, I saw Burning Beds with Fair Fawcett when I was 12. Oh, wow, yeah. And, uh, and that was when I first thought, wow, that's really good. I want to be able to do that. But I still, at the time, I, I was thinking of becoming a dancer, a ballerina. And I did six days a week, and I focused on that. When I moved back to Norway, I was living in Canada. And I'm also, like, very Canadian. On the internet, I'm mentioned to be a Norwegian actor, but really, I'm. It's it all started in Canada. Uh, but when I when I moved from Canada to Norway when I was fourteen, the ballet here, the standard was not as good as the rest of the world. It was quite shit, actually. And I was used to you know international level dance ballet, all that. And I got into the Norwegian opera ballet in Norway. And my technique was the Vaganova style. It's Russian. And here they had another technique. And, you know, for example, in Canada, young dancers dance six days a week, about three hours a day. They have point work every day. In Norway, at the same age, they would dance uh, four times a week, um, an hour and 15 minutes a day. And then point work 15 minutes a week. So the standard was very different. And so I knew what it took to actually make it as a dancer. And that's six days a week, at least three hours a day, and point at least five times a week to be able to compete at that high level. And so when I was 14, I was discouraged by going to the very best school here in Norway and it having not I just knew that that wasn't the international level that would be the best and the same. And so I thought to myself, what's the point of being a dancer when you know you're not the best, when you know that your standard will be lower because it just wasn't like that in Norway at the time. However, since that has happened, the standard of ballet in Norway has risen enormously. I've come back to this country and... I have gone to the Norwegian Opera Ballet and they, the government has put a lot of money into ballet and dance and uh, even the film industry because they want to compete at an international level. However, in the 90s, it had not yet happened. So I started thinking about, well, since the level here isn't the standard that I want to be at, what else is there for me to do? And I thought about acting because I was a performer at heart and I loved singing as well. I loved singing and um, I was actually given the opportunity to sing with Prince. Um, oh, but wow. Yeah. And but I was so young at the time, I, I couldn't believe my ears. Like I was just like he asked me if I could come and see him and in Sweden 
when he was there performing because I he had seen me dance and he was like I want to know if you can sing as well which I could but because I was so young I was it was like I couldn't believe my ears I was like who me like like what like I, I just couldn't even comprehend it. So I literally couldn't speak for three days. I was in shock about meeting him and him asking me and having dinner with me and actually saying, you need to show up here. And I didn't show up. And it was basically because I, I just, it was like too surreal for me and I was not prepared for it. So I regret that, <laughs> that I didn't show up. I regret it <laughs> till this day. I'm like, friggin' why, <laughs> why? I you know if I had been an American and that had happened I'm pretty sure the thought of dreams can come true and yes it could be a reality would be more instilled in my consciousness but when you're from Norway and you're from a little town and you're just kind of small town thinking which I was at the time you can't comprehend that that could be an actual reality and so, yeah. and so, but it was a seed because I started dreaming big, um, shortly after and it took me, you know, it takes a long time to actually go, who this could actually happen to me instead of just looking at a movie theater, uh, like watching, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer on screen thinking, Oh wow, I wish I could do that to like, that can be me, you know, going from that process to actually believing it is a is very tough it's it's like going from yeah. rags to riches it's from going from poverty consciousness to abundance it's it's like poor daddy rich daddy it's like a d different thinking different upbringing so coming from Norway going to LA and trying to think like I can be a star I can do this that there's a lot of inner work that is needed to actually have that in you to think that that is possible. When you did shift into acting and you moved to Los Angeles to concentrate on it, uh, was this a scary move for you initially? Because you said that the the mindset was completely different. So when you when you were able to get your head around that, what kind of jobs were you taking as well while you were auditioning? You know, it was really funny when I went to Los Angeles. I went there because I fell in love with this movie star. And I had bumped into this movie star at a restaurant and it was like starstruck at first sight that I thought was love. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, is this how it feels like to have love at first sight? No, it was starstruck at first sight. And I just kind of thought it was love. And this person said that he loved me. And, and I thought, you know, when in Norway, when you say you love a person, you really mean it. But when you say it in LA, it really just doesn't mean the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. saying, I love you man I love you everything's so cool like I love you it's just like that you know and in Norway it's like different it's like I love you it means like then you get married and you have kids <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it's kind of like a culture shock kind of clash so when I when I and everybody told me my my I thought he was you know my one and only boyfriend I was his one and only girlfriend but I thought that, you know, when people say, you know, your boyfriend's a player, right? I really didn't know what they were talking about. I was like, player? Yeah, he plays basketball, I guess, is, is what I thought it meant. Like, what is a player? 
Um, no, it doesn't. Player, <laughs> baseball player. You know, what do they mean by player? And it took me like at least two years. And I was like, oh, so that's what guys do? Oh, shit. You mean, okay, this is not what I thought it was. So it was, it's, it was a huge co- uh, culture clash for me. Mm-hmm. You know, simple Norway, little town to like Los Angeles. And then thinking that what people said was literal. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost uh, like the small town girl from Iowa trope yeah. that, you, that you hear a lot of the time. Iowa. Iowa. Is she from Iowa? I think she is from Iowa. I know this girl who became like this celebrity. I can't mention her name, but oh man, she went to LA and she posed in Playboy and boy, did they, she didn't know what she was doing. An 18 year old woman does not know the big picture. She does not know how to make her own decisions. And I met Hugh Hefner when I first got to LA and I was asked to be in Playboy many times. And I remember being asked to go to Playmate of the Year party at the Sky Bar. And after that, Hugh Hefner and them wanted me to go in their limo and ride the town. And I think like every single huge Playmate was in that limo. And then there was this Russian Playmate to be there. And I I was so provoked by the whole scene and I had a big fight with Hugh Hefner and I was like 22 at the time and I was just telling them that they were all dirty old men <laughs> that was very popular <laughs> yeah and then at the end of the evening I was sitting there and this friend of Hugh Hefner was and the people in the car were like so is so and so gonna go with you in your hotel and he was like 60 I was like, and I look at them and I have practically pigtails. I think I had two breaths at each side of my head because I was like pretty young for my age, pretty innocent. And I just looked at them all and I'm just like, ew, seriously? (laughs) He's so old. Ew. And then I walked out of the car and slammed the door behind me and I was just like making these gross faces. No, I was like, what? <laughs> Are they joking? <laughs> so yeah, that was my intro to playboy people. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. among your first appearances on TV was the, I guess it was the hit TV series at the time, Millennium, in 1997. Mm. So how was yeah. your first on-screen experience with such a big show? Because it was a huge show at the time. Uh, yeah, like that was one of my first auditions and I did not know how to do an audition. And I had just come from musical theater school where in London at the time we would wear these huge plateau shoes, two inches. And I was a dancer and, you know, when a dancer had holes in their shoes, it was super cool. It was like, you work hard. You like grind that floor with your feet and you tape it. Dancers are like poor. And, you know, I was a poor student and I taped tape around my shoes because they had split in the middle. So I had like tape around both shoes and I was wearing this slinky um, skirt and I was so muscular at the time. 
And the director, David Nutter, I walked in. He was like, what the f- are you? <laughs> he was like, who are you? And I winged it. I winged this audition. And he kept bringing in different actors to act against me. And he, at the end of the audition, he said, you're in the right business. You've got a natural talent. Do not go to an acting coach. Just do what you're doing. Do not go to an acting coach. And then, of course, I did. And um, But anyways, I got the part. I was really nervous. And I was really aware of the camera. And it was my first experience with the camera circling me in one of the scenes. I remember feeling really awkward and really fake. And not as good as the audition, but it did come across as natural. But I remember being very like tense, tense and nervous. And um, I use that. Um, I uh, teach film drama classes now at a college here in Norway. And I use these experiences with these actors. And I really understand what they go through in front of the camera because I've been there, done that. I like understand how they feel, everything. So... So for me, I'm very happy to have gone through those experiences because I now really understand actors that are just starting out. They love working with me because I can just look at them. I'm like, ah, they're going through this and this and this. Okay, I get it. And then I can help them through it. Well, you followed your first TV appearance uh, with the role of Mary Jo Copeland in the teen horror movie Disturbing Behaviour. Now, sadly, in some markets, it only lasted about a week in theatres, but there's Mm -hmm. an unreleased director's cut that is apparently far superior. Really? I haven't even seen it before. Apparently. Apparently, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, apparently it's a 115-minute version of it. The, The version released theatrically was just under an hour and a half. But there's a 115 minute version that David Nutter did screen, I believe, at Fangoria. And it was met with rave reviews, but apparently I think it's Screen Gems won't release it for whatever reason. I uh, feel with directors that direct movies and then they're not allowed to give their versions. And I really heavily resent the studio for putting directors through so much pain. And directors will always have an intuition to what the audience will like best. Yeah, And every experience I've had when the director is like practically going to the hospital because of their experiences being a director and mm. not being allowed to do what they want. Studio with all these different egos telling directors what they think will sell. They've almost, in my experience, always been wrong. They yeah. have always yeah. been wrong. And those movies have always been flops. So why do they do it? Yeah, the, a good example is The Justice League. Yes. The Joss Whedon version got almost universally panned and then the Zack Snyder version comes out. Now, obviously, that was slightly different and Zack had to step down for very personal reasons. But the difference between the two movies is night and day. So you're absolutely right. That initial vision of a director is so important and it's almost invariably ruined. Yeah. Yeah. And I did this. I did this movie. I can't, you know, mention who and who, but like they streamlined this movie. My character was so brilliant and so edgy. And then they streamlined this movie. And I was just thinking it's lost all its character and not just my character, but like it was like messy. The structure was not typical and it was really cool. And then they had to streamline the movie. And I just thought this is the most boring movie ever. Because they had to, like, fit in the budget. And I get it. Fit in the budget. But don't streamline the movie the day before you shoot. 
it's like everyone's not going to be inspired by that and you kind of get like, oh, I thought my character was cool that I signed up to do, but now it's like this. And you're just not, you just go around feeling Dover, mm. you know? And, and often those movies don't, they aren't a hit because these producers, they think they know better. And they're cutting corners. And when you cut corners, you're going to make a, a not-so-good product. So figure out the budget and don't cut corners. Be creative in another way. Quite right. Yeah, totally agree. It's so annoying when they mess shit up. I, uh, yeah, I've seen it so many times. Like, even when I was shooting Electra. I just kind of knew that it, it wasn't going to be hit. I was like, why are they doing it like this? This is not what the audience needs. Was, I knew it immediately. I was like, oh, damn it. Now, obviously, you said that you had a few issues with the, the production itself. But um, looking at the cast list, there were many names there, many fresh faces that went on to bigger things. So what were your memories of uh, being on the set with them? Because you've got people like James Marsden who went on to be an X-Men, Katie Holmes, uh, Nick Stahl. David has like this nose for talent. I think he's quite known for picking out the right actors. But those those actors like Katie Holmes and James Marsden and Nick Stahl had done, they had done work. Mm. Like Katie Holmes was coming off Dawson's Creek um, where she was still doing it. And I don't remember what James Marsden done, but... Nick Stahl had done that Mel Gibson movie. And, yes. you know, they were quite established already. Uh, there was Brendan Fair. Yeah, Brendan Fair. There was, like, some people that really got great starts. So, yeah, that, that movie probably helped me. But I didn't find that my part in the movie was... It wasn't the part that I wanted, you know? But I just wanted to do whatever work I could get. Um, but it was not my favorite part. Well, in following that, you're getting booked for roles in two Fox movies around that time, which is the quirky crocodile movie Lake Placid, which I actually rewatched this morning. It's brilliant. Uh, I didn't, I didn't realize I hadn't seen it in so long. And obviously, uh, the Jim Carrey favorite, me, myself, and Irene as well. Uh, there are small roles, but you're starting to get some major headway. Uh, you're following this with an appearance in the then-hit TV series Dark Angel, also. So how was this period of time working for you? You're still young in the business, but you're getting some decent screen time at least. You know, for Lake Plaza, it was actually a much, much bigger role. It was like the lead um, teen role. And um, I was really excited about it. However, the role was with the big monster in the sea and they had budget cuts. And so that role that I initially had was so cut. It just became like this small role and I was very disappointed. But at the same time, the director was like, I know you're gonna be disappointed, but we kept in your part anyway, even though we had to do major budget cuts and your role was with the big monster. So I got to do the set, but at the same time of doing that movie, I was also doing a commercial so literally when I was doing Lake Placid, I, I went from doing a full commercial shoot for Coca-Cola to getting off that set, taking the ferry, and going straight to the other set with zero sleep. <laughs> that must have been exhausting. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it, was, it was insane. But what I took away from that role was I had such a good impression of Bill Pullman and 
Bridget Fonda. I just thought, oh, how are they like? You know, they're stars. And they were just so like normal and down to earth. And Bridget Fonda's so nice. And just so I was like, oh, they're just normal people like me. And so that big like the the room between the two became a little less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I could see the possibility that, oh, maybe I could also be that big of a star. Maybe I also can get there. So little experiences like that on a movie really it helps. It's not just because you're practicing acting. It's because you're learning yourself how to think like everything can be possible because it's not really that huge of a gap. It's just, it's, it's like that reality is really just a reality. It's not like somebody else's reality. It could be anyone's reality if you just get out of your own way. Yeah. It's all in the mind, that big gap, you know? That's actually a really good piece of advice for anyone in their <laughs> business, I think. Not just yeah. uh, not just an actor, but you know anyone that wants to get in any part of the business. It is, and it's just you know you just get rid of that gap. Like if that gap had not been so huge when I had met Prince, maybe I would have gone to meet him when he wanted me to go and and sing for him and and dance and like work with him. I was like thought I had heard things. I literally thought like I must have just mistaken what he just said. Like that gap was too big at the time. Yeah, I, I can actually fully relate to that. I mean, the first time that I went to LA and it was such bizarre circumstances in how I ended up there. But the second person I met off that plane was Selma Blair. And, mm-hmm. and as soon as I got talking with Selma and then I realized, oh my God, you know, I, I do not feel that gap that you speak about. Because then you just realize that they're people. It's like Ralph Brown mm-hmm. said on yeah. his episode, you know, they're just people. You just see them a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I learned the film business through tabloids at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh and and I don't mean like reading the tabloids. I meant like I saw pictures on the newsstands and they were wearing $10,000 dresses. I did not know that they did not own those dresses. I just thought, "Whoa. They have a $10,000 dress on and they have hundreds of them." Wow, their wardrobe must be huge. <laughs> I did not know. And then I was invited to a premiere with that starstruck thing I had. I I was invited to go to like the red carpet with this person and it would have helped my career, but I never went. And it was because of the dress. I was like, I only have a $300 dress in my wardrobe. There's no way I could go on the red carpet with that thing. And I don't have $10,000 to buy one of those dresses. And and he had actually mentioned Ralph Lauren, I think. He was like, oh, you know, we'll just get a dress from blah, 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 like some famous designer. And I just zipped my mouth and thought, oh, my God, does he think I have $10,000 I could buy a dress with? Oh, my God. <laughs> Shit. And I didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> like, what? Uh, later, years later, I hung out with Michelle. And it was when she had done SWAT and I had met her. And it was the first time I had gone to someone's house. And there was a uh, publicist or, like, a dress person come with a whole bunch of dresses. And they came with, like, all these, like, expensive dresses from all these different designers and I sat there staring at her, trying on all these dresses. And it was the first time I realized that they didn't own them. <laughs> I was like, what? You don't own all of them? She's like, no, Natty. No. 
what do you like no you get dresses and she didn't think anything of it and I was just like you mean I could borrow one she's like yeah pick one and so I went to the swap premiere with her with a dress on us and it was my first experience on the red carpet and like this expensive dress and I finally understood what that was it was really interesting in 2005, uh, you hit the major role of the Marvel villain Typhoid, a variant not of the Loki variety, uh, but of the character Typhoid Mary. Now, in the yep. Marvel Daredevil spin-off, Elektra. Now, this was before the birth of the official MCU, but the character was well-received. Now, how were you approached in this role? I uh, had an audition, and they had been looking for this part for weeks and weeks. I had heard... And I got I got this audition, and really I uh, just uh, had this idea that I would put a chopstick in my hair and use it to put up like a bun with a chopstick, and then I would use it as a sword. And I think that's what got me the part was the fact that I choreographed this fight scene with this chopstick that I took out of my hair and waved my hair around and, <laughs> and then had a very cynical approach to the character, like uh, evil, evil character. But I was, I was like smiling the whole way. And, and I just, I practiced that in my living room over and over and over again, at least a hundred times. And then I went to the audition and I, they were like just staring at me and they were like, Cool. But then I didn't know that I had the part. I, I had booked a part, a very small independent movie in Spain. So I was in Spain when I got the call that I had gotten the part. But then they tried to take the part away from me. And that was an interesting call. My manager at the time was crying on the phone saying, um, they're trying to take the part away from you. And I was like, why? And she was bawling her eyes out saying, you have to tell me the truth. You have to tell me the truth. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you did the screen test for Girl Next Door, didn't you? And I was like, yeah. And this was before she was my manager. And I was like, yeah. And I didn't get it. It was between me and Alicia Cuthbert. And they're like, somebody called them and told them that you were an ex-porn star. And I was <gasps> like, what? Yeah, they, are, they have to take the role away from you. And I'm like, I've never been a porn star and I'm not an ex-porn star. And they were like, are you sure? And she was bawling, like just so upset. I was like, I swear on my life, I'm not an ex-porn star. I have no idea how they thought that. I have an idea. My name, when I did The Girl Next Door audition was called, I named myself Lena Teal because I was into numerology at the time. And I had gone to a numerologist and been like, what name, what stage name can I call myself? And what's like a good vibration? I created this stage name from these letters that this numerology gave me, like, and came up with Lena Teal. But before that, it was Leanna Tay, Lena Teal, like all these different names. And and uh, the, the casting directors that gave me the role of Electra, they kind of laughed on the floor. They loved me at that point because I had come in every other week with a new headshot, with a new name, with the same letters. Because I was like, I really didn't like Lena Teal as a name, but I couldn't figure out any other names with those letters this neurologist had given me. 
But anyway, so cut to, got a screen test in 2001 for Girl Next Door. Lena Teal was the name I had for a little while until I was like, I cannot have that name. It just does not feel natural. And I changed my name back to Natasha Malti. And that was when I got Electra. And so when they found out that I was Lena Teal, they thought I was the ex-porn star. And so my manager had to prove to them that that was wrong. And she did. She's like proved it and went through the internet and everything. She's like, find a, one single photo of anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> and of course they were like, ah, oh, you know, and I got the part and they were like, wonderful. And they were awesome. But yeah, I really don't know how that happened. But it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, this goes on in Hollywood. People lie about you. People try to bring you down. That's a pretty unique way to go in for a role. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard a story like it. But apparently, rumor has it, you'd actually auditioned for the role of Electra in Daredevil. Is that right? You know, I did. I did. Uh, a twist How do you to the table. Ah, well, I, I was kind of praying that it was right because I got it off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And I really thought I did a good job on that one. Um, and I felt, I remember Jennifer Garner getting it, and she's wonderful. Like, she's she's such a nice person. What a, she's such a sweetheart. Um, but I remember thinking, but why didn't I get it? Well, she was coming off a big show, and she was already had made it in my eyes. But I, I thought Electra had brown hair, I think. Like, I yeah. look more the part. They do not always cast, like, like Typhoid Mary has red hair. And she's so different in the comic books. And I was really kind of wishing they would do more of that crazy, psychotic version of Typhoid Mary. I really wanted to play that. And I could have because I can be freaking psycho if I want to be. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I wish I could play that character again and they could do it more like she is in the comic books if you're gonna go crazy apparently the movie had a, an r-rated cut that was cut down for a more teenage audience uh did you have any scenes of uh craziness cut down yeah definitely the character in the audition was more cynical and more dark you know and she did martial arts in the first draft and then they changed it to kiss blow a kiss and I remember thinking and I went up to the producers and I said you know I can do martial arts like I used to be a dancer at a you know at a high level um I can do those moves easily and which I could and uh I just don't think they believed me you know I remember Darren Aronowski doing Black Swan and I said oh I really want to audition for that because I used to be a dancer well I heard from one of the producers that they had rolled their eyes and be like, oh, she thinks we're going to think that she was a dancer or something like that. And nobody believed that I was an actual dancer. And I mean, like six hours a day since I was five years old kind of dancer. It's, it's like people's impression and how they view people according to how they look is a mistake that Hollywood often make. And it's almost like you have to be weird looking or almost unattractive to be taken seriously mm, wow. to know if you're a concert pianist you like if you look like a maxim model person then you're probably not that <laughs> it's a very good point well speaking of how they view women uh the infamous kiss between you and jennifer garner gained a lot of hollywood attention including the aforementioned mtv best kiss award 
So mm-hmm. how was filming it? Uh, was it a day where every single male on the production turned up to set? And also, do you actually have a statue for that win? No, I I don't have a statue for that win because we didn't win it. We were nominated. And um, The Notebook, uh, Ryan Gosling, who I knew at the time, and how dare him not tell me that he won because they probably knew before. I think these people know. <laughs> they know before they go. And I remember thinking my agent should have told me because we had the same agent. But I had a really fun experience anyway leading up to that. The day of doing that kiss was so technical. They had like a dolly and a crane and like they had all these gadgets on set. And I had bronchitis. (laughs) It was just awful. And I would just, my whole concern on that day was, oh no, what if I get Jennifer Garner sick? And so I would gurgle between every single shot with alcohol so she wouldn't get sick. So that was my kiss. That was what was really going on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least your breath smelled great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of Jennifer Garner, she openly criticised the film when it was released. Uh, What do you feel about the film today in an era where superhero movies are pretty much the number one production in the business? I just thought when that movie came out, I thought, oh, did they have to go so vanilla? Yes. Why couldn't they be like super spunky and badass? Why did they make a female um, comic book character vanilla when she could have been so much more? And Typhoid Mary, she could have been crazy, you know? Like how she is in the comic book, and I and I was annoyed that they went to family. Let's let's make a family movie, and they. I think that was the wrong decision. No, it's a good point. And and the thing is, this movie really gets shunned. You know, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, Captain Marvel is the first female-led Marvel movie," you know, with mm. a female character, and it wasn't. Elektra actually does hold that stature. But they don't mention that film anymore. It's like they're embarrassed. Yeah, quite quite possibly. Mm-hmm. I think I it's mean, more I'll... the case that they just want to push the MCU more than anything else. Anything that happened before then is just discarded and yeah. something else. It's like they say Blade. Blade was the movie that pretty much rescued Marvel from financial ruin and it was the first African American superhero movie, but they practically pushed Black Panther as that now without going back to it they, they kind of just want to shun all of these movies because it's not the feige vision i guess yeah. anyway mm. we're we're wandering mm. into marvel territory there we, we don't want to upset the gods no <laughs> so instead marvel has taken over i i remember the ceo from marvel before marvel got bought up there was a ceo who who it was his idea to use real character actors as you know, Ryan Gosling was approached to play Thor before that other guy. What's his name again? Um, Chris Hemsworth. Hemsworth. <laughs> yeah, before Chris Hemsworth. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, Chris was represented by Eileen Feldman when they approached Ryan Gosling for Thor. And then she was also representing Chris Hemsworth. And maybe that was the doorway in. I don't know. So something like that could have happened. And I remember the Marvel guy said, do you know Ryan Gosling? And I actually took him to Ryan Gosling um, where he was DJing because he wanted the Marvel guy wanted to meet him. And I introduced them. But Ryan was really pissed off. (laughs) 
<laughs> he was like, I'm not doing work DJing. And I was like, oopsies. Okay, fine. Never mind. <laughs> and he could have been Thor. Well, delving into the world of video game conversions now, which is Steve's specialist area yeah. in a sense, uh, you've kind of gained a real cult following by taking on two extremely popular video game characters. Uh, first of which I'll say has to be Blood Rain, uh, which is a role that you uh, took over from Christiana Loken with 2007's Blood Rain Deliverance. And then mm-hmm. the third in the franchise, Blood Rain, the Third Reich in 2011. Now, how did the role come to you and how did you make it your own? So this is very interesting. I had screen tested for a TV show called Something Jane. And I was on hold for a month and she got the part. And because she got the part, and this is the most f***ed up thing, she took me to the boxing match to see Uwe Boll box his critics. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Christian Loken took me there. And and because Painkiller Jane was the thing. And she had just gotten the role Painkiller Jane and... Uva was like, it's on the same shooting schedule as Blood Rain. And Christiana didn't know this, but I was on hold for Painkiller Jane to do the lead. And then she said, oh, I got this part, Painkiller Jane. I was like, oh, weird. And then Uva Bull was like kind of tripping because she couldn't meet the scheduling of Blood Rain. And it was just so weird. Uva was like, you know what? I want you to do Blood Rain. And I was like, Oh, and so, yeah, he just basically offered me the part like a couple weeks later and said, you're a blood rain. Um, Christiana Loken is doing Painkiller Jane, which I was supposed to do, I thought. And then it was just like we did a role swap. It was so weird and it was just super crazy weird. It was a completely coincidental thing. (laughs) That is weird, Mm -hmm. but it worked. I mean, this was... Was it your first major role like, as a leading? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I think so. I had done Electra. No, I had done Electra, Skinwalkers, um, DOA. And then I got Blood Rain. And when I did Blood Rain, I was working with a management company. I had all actually booked a pilot. And I picked Blood Rain instead of the pilot. And I don't know if that was a good thing. Mostly because my managers wanted to do Blood Rain because I was offered a lot of money for it. Mm. And the pilot was not giving me so much money. It was like a huge budget thing. And I wished my management company had pushed me towards television. And they should have. Because TV was, was where the industry was going. And they were like, no, you're a movie actress. You're going to be a movie star. And I'm like, no, but I really want to do this pilot. And so then I got Blood Rain. I got the pilot. And I had to choose Blood Rain because I should have chosen the pilot. But I chose Blood Rain because my managers told me to do it. So it was kind of like that. So not merely much choice in the matter. Mm, yeah. And I, I was trusting my managers too much at the time. And I was also got a part on L Word and I was told not to do it. So... I, I listened to my agent then too, which I wish I didn't do. Well, on Blood Rain, uh, you worked with the legendary directing figure of Uwe Boll uh, mm. and for a number of movies afterwards. 
how did you find working with someone whom people class as a crazy German director? First of all, he's totally not crazy. That's his persona. He's actually like just very grounded guy who's who's does things by the book. He should have been a prolific producer and he would have been like a Jerry Bruckheimer, I think. But because he wanted to be a director and a producer, I think he should have just gone with producing, to be totally honest. Um, his passion is really not directing. I mean, he says it is, but like, he's not a detailed oriented person and to be a director you have to have so much patience and and pay attention to small details and also understanding scripts and scenes and scene arcs and uh beat changes and stuff and i really just thought he would have made like the most amazing producer if he had let somebody else done the directing part he would have been huge by now yeah but he's a great guy, and he's creative in his own way. He's just very out of the box. And I believe in structure, in structuring movies in a way where, you know, you see the storyline and the character, and you do the edits and a storyboard, and, you know, you really think it out. But I, I just don't think Uva has that um, attention to detail and wanting to, you know, draw out the storyboards. You know, know where your editing cuts are before you film the movie, stuff like that. Those are those are things that make a movie a lot better. And he is impatient. Yeah, so, so he's a very kind of, would you say, like pick up and go director? He's just go, 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 cut, hurry up, hurry up. You know, just wants to get it in the can, like real quickly. Yeah. And I think he should have just been a money guy. He's great with money. He's great with numbers. He's really honest. He doesn't put people over. He doesn't steal. He's got ethics as far as producing is. Like, you know, he's he's quite a great director where he's not sleazy, you know. He yeah. does his job, but he's a good guy. At the bottom of it, he's not a sleaze bag, and I've met a whole bunch of those. So... For me, Uva Bull shines when it comes to just being a good person. That's, that is so good to hear because obviously there's a, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people online paying him differently. Obviously, you know he goes and boxes his critics, <laughs> which is amazing that you were at that fight. It was so huge news. Um, I know in the so filmmaking silly. community. But, oh, uh, and he can be silly. Yes, he's silly, but he's like the underdog, right? He's like a total yeah. underdog, yeah. and he's like a little big kid. But underneath it all, he's he just needed some guidance and somebody to believe in him. And if he would have, I believe if he wasn't so stubborn, he was too rebellious, you know. And, yeah. and I love rebellion. However, story structure is story structure. And uh, character development is character development. And as an actor going on to different projects, I really don't understand why they don't put more money into the writing and really making sure that the script is so good that you can't bomb. Yeah. And the fact that these movie people, producers, put money, spend time on a two-month project and not make sure that the script is so freaking amazing is beyond me. I was like, why are you even bother making a movie if you're not going to make the script as be best as it, as you can make it? Why pay a writer 
and not use $40,000 and, or, you know, when you're a studio, you use millions, but like freaking get a writer that knows what they're doing and don't cut corners. Like, don't do that. Like, just really come up with the best script possible. I, I love the blunt truth that Natasha just brings yeah. to this show. You, you can come back anytime. This is great. But, <laughs> so you also appeared around this time in the Jason Statham, Wesley Snipes action movie Chaos, mm-hmm. uh, which was directed by Tony, I want to say Giglio. Yeah, Tony Giglio. Tony Giglio. And then obviously the uh, Ultra Camp equal to Street Fighter video game movie Dead or Alive. But now for this role... You apparently underwent rigorous martial arts training in China. Is that right? It was actually in Los Angeles, uh, but it was Jackie Chan's team that came to L.A. Some of them were from Hong Kong. And then we had, I think her name was Ming. She was from L.A. and she had been, I think she was like a gold medalist in the Olympics or something. Something like that. And she was just an awesome teacher. And we would, we would train every day for like five hours for months before the shoot. I really enjoyed that training. I really did. I loved it. And we worked with a stunt team, martial arts stunt team that were, you know, I, I really specifically believe that people who study and are of Asian descent and they've studied in Asia their standards are going to be super high because they're so tough on themselves. Mm. They are tough people. They work their asses off. And so their standards are really high. And same with ballet. I went to Chinese ballet school and it's, it's pretty much, you've got Russia in an Asian body. Like it's the same cuckoo suffer to you have it. Perfect kind of mentality. And yeah. I think uh, they were really a, such a great stunt team. I respected training with them. They taught me so much. I actually went to a Taekwondo school that that I just wanted to work out. I was supposed to do this other movie that didn't happen. And I started training for that movie. And I was in my 30s. And it was after DOA years later. But I still had it in my body, what I'd learned from them. And the Taekwondo school said, please be our student. And I was thinking, oh, my God, they have no idea how old I am. And um, they're like, we know you're going to win a gold if you stick to this. And and they asked me to join their school, and I didn't. I was like, no, if I was in my 20s, maybe. But, but yeah, it was from the technique that they had taught me. And plus, I had been a dancer and so it looked like I had done martial arts for years, but I really hadn't. The film, which was something akin to Charlie's Angels meets Enter the Dragon, for anyone that hasn't seen it, uh, seemed to be hampered by language barriers between the cast and the crew, with apparently only two crew members being able to speak English and then translating for everyone. Um mm-hmm. Were there some of the issues uh, that you faced as well? Yeah, on DOA, absolutely. The director didn't speak English, but a little bit. He sp- he spoke a little bit of English. Yes, he did. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, difficult. What I learned about like the Chinese sets was it was different. Like the Hong Kong stunt crew or the crew got different food than the crew that worked and were from China. 
I don't really know what that was about, but I felt like it could have been like a class difference or something. But it, I remember reacting to that, thinking, why are they getting better food than them? That's that's something that was really strange to observe. I'm not. Sure. I can't remember what the exact uh, what the exact details of the uh, the thing was, but Britain had Hong Kong as a colony, and then China um, wanted it back, and then it was handed over, and then it. So there might be some political fallout from that, maybe. It could have been catering was just cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that whole experience for DOA was bizarre. There was rats in the kitchen where we were staying at and the hotel was so embarrassed that they like took all the rats in a big can the day after and put gasoline on all these rats and burned and said we've gotten rid of them they were like hey look we are inviting everybody out and they invited us out to see all these rats get burned oh that's horrible <laughs> yeah i was like uh that was in now, China. We're like, oh. <laughs> now, did the separation of food happen after this? <laughs> no, no. You know, I'm half Chinese, right? No. I'm no. half Chinese, so yeah, I'm half Chinese. I grew up with a very Chinese mother, uh, meaning like she's like a tiger mom. She's 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 famous being a tiger mom, meaning she like she you know put me in ballet all the time and made me practice and was in a lot of why super strict no tv no this no that like you go to ballet class you do your piano you do your violin lessons you can't you're not allowed to go to movies you're not allowed to go and hang out and have a social life you're working <laughs> basically so yeah there's there was uh, some uh, things that i experienced in china like the rats um and you know there's a lot of pain in china i mean there's so much pain there. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's. I had an uncle who came from China t to Canada, and he lived with us. And um, he's a millionaire now, but he came from absolutely nothing. And he was punished for playing the violin when he was young. And he won't pick it up anymore. I don't. I can't remember what the story behind that is. But he came to Canada, and he didn't know a word of English. He lived with us and he was the most hardworking, insane person. He did not know any English and got straight A's. I don't know how he did that. And then he became a mechanic, like a high level mechanic. And then I think he started, he was like doing Christianity or something. And he became a priest at the same time or a pastor. Some, some don't remember which type of Christianity. Um, and now he he's like a millionaire, and it's because they work their butts off at a level that, you know, us Norwegian people don't understand. It is just a total different mindset. And I remember going to Hong Kong, and I was modeling in Hong Kong, and I learned what drive was about. And the people in Hong Kong and just the energy and the buzz of the city, you really understand what hard work is about and the drive. And the pace. And I learned that modeling in Hong Kong, uh, a driving force that I'd never experienced in Europe or Canada. I respect it. I respect, yeah. I respect how hard they work. And I learned to work. I learned like what hard work 
was from that part of my upbringing and culture and stuff. It's it's definitely from my mom. Well, speaking of number one, uh, unfortunately, uh, DOA Dead or Alive didn't reach number one. It seemed kind of destined to join some of the other video game movies in the realm of kind of lost in translation. Well, the fans say it deviated too much from the source material, which is, you know, a beat-em-up. You can't deviate that far, but at least they got half-naked volleyball, so they would have been happy with that. No, that's that's where they went wrong. They paid attention to hot women too much. Little substance. It was like, well, how could this movie not sell um, just having hot women? I don't think the producers realized that, no, you need to sell a movie... Uh, based on really good material and not just come from that perspective. It, I mean, the producers didn't all think like that. Like, I think like I heard that comment once, but also I'm going to say that I think it was a Weinstein company that bought DOA. And sometimes I don't know if this is completely accurate, but this is how I perceived it at the time that the Weinstein company had bought DOA, given them a bunch of money, and they were going to market the movie and then didn't. And I think they bought it to shelf it so that Kill Bill could be the martial arts movie that took that spot in the industry. And so sometimes that kind of thing goes on in Hollywood where they will try to make a movie not be seen as much. Mm. Yes, uh, I've heard it's competition. of this before. The infamous Roger Corman Fantastic Four springs to mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. But I mean, uh, the movie, it, it wasn't screened for the critics. It was originally planned to have sequels, which apparently were, were abandoned. It was very heavily marketed on Holly Valance's naked towel scene, which was then ended up being done with CGI underwear added, I believe. <laughs> which, uh, for for those people who... Uh, somehow interested in the Holly Valance scene, it did make it onto the DVD, which I'm sure would increase some sales of it. I haven't even seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that there was that scene in it. In the actual movie, it's more done where she gets out of the shower and she has like her, well, she basically has her knickers on, doesn't have a bra, and she does this whole fight scene where she throws a bra in the air and then lands in it perfectly. Oh, okay, yeah, I know that. I know that scene, but nothing was shown. Like There is an actual version that, that was shot where she was fully naked in it, and the footage is out there, but it was included on the DVD release. And it was very questionable of, of as to why. <laughs> yeah, there's you know. no need for it. It is just titillation for titillation's sake. That's exploitation, by the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. When they make an, uh, they don't. The actress doesn't know that that is going to be on there, and she's just doing the scene because she thinks it's going to be cut away, and she needs needs to do it so that it's easier to cut and edit, and then it's ending up on the DVD like that. That's exploitation. Yeah, it'd be an interesting case, especially if Holly doesn't know about it. Um, but were this, was there some fun involved in Dead or Alive? There must have been at least some, because it looked like it was fun to do. Mm. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the easiest way of saying it. Working with five women is very difficult. There was an actress on set bullying Devin Aoki. 
And the producers actually asked me to come to China earlier. And I had to be Devon Aoki's friend and counterpart to help balance out the girl cattiness that was happening on set. So I really was resented by the other girls because they couldn't understand why I was siding with Devon. And I really couldn't understand, I couldn't really understand why they were bullying her. And so I became like the target after that. And then I was not very well liked by the other girls because I chose to protect Devin from the bullying. And then all of a sudden the producers thought that I was the problem because no one liked me while I was just trying to help them save the movie and not having Devin walk off the movie. So it was it was kind of like a interesting development there where I was kind of blamed or some weird shit, like some weird perception was out there when I had been asked to kind of like help the movie run more smoothly and then go out of my way to do that. And then actually after that, been like, well, the other girls didn't like her. It's like, well, why do you think? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I had to do what you guys told me to do to help out. So a lot of cattiness on set then. Yeah, there was so much cattiness and uh it was I just did not like that dynamic at all. Um I don't like ringleaders, I don't like girls picking on other girls, I don't like gossip against a person. It's just silly and a lot of that was happening on that movie. Yeah, it was really uncomfortable and I and I got like this impression that I didn't want to work with like a huge female cast again if that was if that's the dynamic that happens. Like all these egos clashing. I mean, I was like way older than Devin and I and I literally like I was talking to she was twenty two and I was like in my thirties and going out of my way to like be someone's friend who was a lot younger than me. And so I wasn't very appreciated for it, but it was something that had to happen because there was a lot of jealousy going on. Oh. Uh, in a way, we look at it. I mean, the way you obviously come across here and in conversations that I've had with you as well, you are a very um, a strong, independent presence. And you're not the type of person who kind of gets in with that kind of crowd. You can tell that just from, you know, the way you talk, you know, and you're, you're very intelligent, you're, you're not the kind that falls into that bracket of gang all the girls together. And and Devon, obviously, you know, she was going through a, a big time in her career. She'd just done a Fast and the Furious movie. She was doing Sin City as well mm -hmm. around that time, which I think, you know, it, it's kind of obvious. And, and I've heard it before from other women on film sets, you know, when you're having that kind of level of interest, especially in the business, you know, it, it can be very easy to become a victim in such an all-girl environment you know i i tried to offset the jealousy like if it was if i felt like it was towards me i would say stuff like oh i don't want to become a movie star i just want to become a housewife and have children just to like <laughs> kind of like help them not be you know competitive with me i would say stupid shit like that and and then they would they would literally go and tell my manager and my manager, when I got back from the movie, he was like, I put so much energy into you. And I know you only want to be a housewife now. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Word. This was an interesting development. 
and I know <laughs> who said that, you know, <laughs> and, and literally it's just, it's just so catty when, when, you know, you're working with catty people. I don't, I'm not very impressed. Casting directors seem to love putting you into vampire roles. Now, is this something that you yourself have a passion for, or is this just uh, someone telling your manager that you loved vampires after playing in Blood Rain? Mm-mm. I think it's just a look. When you when your cast is a vampire, they often want like the sexy girl look. And I guess because I had done Maxim, which I regret doing, like when I first got to LA, I, I said no to Baywatch because I was like completely against it. But when they offered to do a shoot in Maxim, that created an impression that I didn't really like working from. Mm-hmm. Um, but it opened a lot of doors, but it was, and, and, you know, maybe I wouldn't have done anything if it wasn't for those doors opening. But... But it was also something that was super difficult because that's not my personality. That, you know, the whole Maxim impression, the whole persona of that. Like, I I literally got guys treating me a certain way after that. You know, it's almost almost as bad as doing Playboy. Mm -hmm. Kind of the same kind of thing. This shallow, objectify woman kind of world. And there's so many men who think girls are a certain way because they do that kind of a photo shoot where you're kind of hot and sexy and you're wearing a bikini. It's it's two separate things. You're the artist, you're the actor, and then there's the persona, which is just, you know, the machine. Um, I was asked to do Stuff Magazine shoot for Electra because Jennifer didn't want to do it. And they asked me to do it because they needed the exposure. So I did it. And I, I didn't feel like I was, I was powerful enough to say no um, and not piss the studio off and be called difficult after. So there's like stuff like that that happens. The last 10 years of your career, you've been in roles in movies such as Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief and This Means War, um, as well as doing various appearances for Uwe Boll's movies. Um, now, how was juggling such a hectic schedule between countries as you were appearing in closer about four or five projects a year? You know, I wasn't, I didn't have any kids at the time. I didn't have a boyfriend. I would just go from job to job and I enjoyed myself. I worked really hard. I mean, at one point I had a boyfriend actually, but he was so helpful. He would run my lines with me every single night. Mm-hmm. And I think I, it was the year I booked Electra, I had a boyfriend. It makes such a difference when you have somebody working with you and running your lines with you all the time and working out scenes and stuff like that. You know, I, I booked less when I didn't have him as a boyfriend because I had no <laughs> one to help me with my running my scenes. And I was like, why did I dump him? No. <laughs> <laughs> but he was an actor, you know, so he loved it. And he uh, he he worked with this uh, teacher called Cameron Thor and who had trained with Roy London, who were the acting coaches. You know, I think Brad Pitt worked with Roy London and stuff. So, so that was really cool, like... Uh, I think the self-taping thing is just so horrible because it's it's harder to get like, hey, I have a self-tape. Will you come run my lines with me? No, it's like, oh, 
we got to do a self tape and let's pretend like let's do your voice on a recorder and then your the voice on the recorder is the other character that you're reading it across but it's yourself it's it's very difficult this whole new process of self taping and getting work as an actor i think that's probably the reason why i work less now because the process of going to an audition is self tape where it is so difficult, especially in Norway, to get somebody to work with you and, and like to call someone up and be like, hey, you know, can you run my lines with me for five hours? Whereas when it was an audition before, all these actors would be like, hey, you're going to go to that audition? Yeah. Hey, shall we run our lines together before we go to the audition? Yeah. Okay, cool. And you're constantly meeting actors, running lines and stuff. And then it just turned into be at home and do your self-taping. And I just find that really difficult. In uh, around 2016, 2017, you land a role in a truly amazing movie called Alpha, which experienced a number of setbacks in its release. Also co-produced by our man, Richard Mirish. Hi, Richard. We know Hi. you're listening. And Hi. <laughs> it was a, it's a truly remarkable movie, and some of it was actually shot in Iceland. Now, were you back in Norway at this point, and this is how you came to be part of that production? No, I was actually living in Australia at this point, and I was uh, in Canada visiting my mom, and and I was like going to move all my stuff to Australia. I had just shipped all my stuff from LA to Australia. I had I was a new mom, and there was a girl who was supposed to do that part of Roe who for some reason it didn't work out with her and so they needed a new part and so I was visiting Canada and the casting directors that casted me in Electra said can you come in and do these auditions and so I did the auditions I think three times and I was cast as a new person on tape, but through these casting directors who I trusted very much. And thanks to them, I'm always able to give a good performance because they make me feel comfortable. And so that's how I got the part. Yeah. And that was after maybe 300 auditions. <laughs> it was like pilot season as well. And I was just auditioning um, with this other single mother. Uh, we were helping each other out and we were doing all these self tapes together and, you know, help each other out for our, also our in-person auditions. But it was a wonderful experience in Alpha. I, I feel like it was one of the best movies that I got to be in. I think it's probably the most quality movie I've ever been in. It's just a different thing. You got, like, someone who's more like the studio. Movable is more like a studio. And then you got somebody like the director of Alpha who's like a poet, you know? Yeah. That's, is it Albert Hughes? It is Albert Hughes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Being back in Norway now, we've come full circle. You're now taking your career in a completely new direction and you're putting your creativity behind the camera. And uh, what can we look forward to? I'm doing a comedy movie. I got my first lead in a comedy that I'm doing in January. It's, it's an independent movie, and I'm doing a couple of other independent movies. I still act. It's not like I'm not going to be acting, because I am going to eventually spend more time in Los Angeles again after I'm finished school. Um, I will continue acting, but I want to do directing. I want to do writing. I want to do all of them. 
and I'm just going to use three years now. And I'm actually becoming a better actor learning all the other roles in a movie production. Um, I'm learning a lot about writing scripts and a lot of shooting styles, like camera work. There's so much to learn and then bring into the acting world from even doing film school for behind the camera work. So I'm going to be doing all. I'm not saying no to acting. I'm just saying yes to it all. Yeah, and, and the thing is, you come across so passionate about it. You can tell that you have so much love for this new area that you're getting into. And if anything of your career that we've covered today, you are an extremely driven individual, you know, who, who really puts the heart and soul into their work. And, you know, all power to you. I think you're going to be absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think you have to love the movie business and every aspect of it to be able to make it. You just, oh, yes. it's so difficult, like insane industry, a lot of dark and a lot of light. Yeah, it is a cruel mistress of this business. Yeah. Yes, but it is. We, we've all experienced it in, in different ways, the good and the bad. And some people yeah. you expect to be the bad or the good. And some people you really believe are the good are terrible. You know, yeah, it, you know, it's, Hello. It, yeah. but you know, it, it's always good when you eventually do come across those people that truly have a love for the business, you know, and there's, there's people who are just obviously in it just for, you know, they just want to go to the parties and rub the shoulders and, and some people, you know, just there for the money and they don't care about the art. But when you, when you meet those people that truly do give a shit about, the work being done in it you know yeah. it, it you could have 30 bad days and that one good day of meeting a person puts it all in perspective yeah. i wish there were a lot of work that i said no to but you know when you're trying to pay your bills and you're trying to survive and everything like if you don't come from rich parents and and you come from poor dad and not the rich dad you know you got to take all the work that you can get and plus you learn it from everything that you do you know, so in that aspect, I loved every job that I had because I learned something new. But on the other hand, it creates a, a persona and a career that could be a B actress instead of an A actress, A list, uh, because you have to pay the rent, you have to buy your acting lessons, you have to put more work into the training, you know. So I was really passionate about getting better, but also a lot of self doubt. So it's like, yes, you're becoming good, better in act, as an actor, but holy shit, if you don't come from the background where you think you're a star to begin with and you have to work your confidence up to that level, it takes years. It takes oh, years yeah. to get to that self-belief mm -hmm. and that, you know what, I'm enough. And to get to the I'm enough takes a lot of therapy and a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely right. Unless you're going to be putting the effort in, then uh, you're not going to be getting anything out. So, I think that's as good a point as any to move on to our Nominate 5. Now's the time to Nominate 5. Nominate 5! Yes, Nominate 5! Or 3, or 4, or 6, or 9. Now's the time to Nominate 5! We so need a new jingle for Season 3, by the way, I'm just telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we do, yeah. We do. It's getting to the point where it's, it, that's starting to feel like the anniversary is one where it's going, this is feeling a lot longer than it used to feel. 
But yes, Steve, <laughs> what's nominate five? Well, nominate five is the part of the show where we invite our guest to nominate five of a chosen thing. It varies from guest to guest. And it's usually something linked with their favourite movies or their favourite pieces of music. In this case, we have asked Natasha to nominate her five favourite personal movie experiences. <gasps> okay, so... Um... So we, what we will do, we will do it in the form of a countdown, hopefully. Because mm-hmm. it very so... rarely goes right. It never goes right. <laughs> It never goes right, but we'll try our best counting down from five. So, starting at number five, what is your first favorite personal movie experience? I think that would have to be Blood Rain. Mm-hmm. Number okay. five, because it was my first lead, big lead. I can understand that. Yeah, like like the lead lead. And then number four would perhaps be Skinwalkers? That's a no, good film. No. I have seen it. D- DOA, and then DOA would be four, and then Skinwalkers would be three. Okay, that's that's kind of interesting that uh, DOA is actually on there, because it didn't sound <laughs> like you had much of a fun experience when you were making it. I, I didn't, but I did have the most amazing training experience Yeah, with the stunt team before we went filming and and it was still like you know a huge movie and we got to film in China and that was extraordinary to film in a on the other part of the world even though they had rats um it, just to experience the culture and just see what i saw you know okay so that was your number 4 you said number 3 was skimwalker yeah right. Yeah, number two would be Electra, mm-hmm. and okay. that is because it was like my breakthrough role in a way, like the thing that kind of changed the game. And then I think number one would have to be Alpha because it was the first movie that I really believed in. Yeah, and it is uh, an astonishing movie, and uh, it is one that is going to be in the box at some point, Steve. So you can rest assured on that. So. Natasha, it has been absolutely amazing having you on here today. So what have you got coming up for all of our viewers? What have we got to promote? I understand, uh, were you working on a book? I'm working on a book. And it will be released in the United States, maybe next year or maybe the year after. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am working on a book that's going to be released in Norway first. It's about how it is like to be a woman coming coming from a small town and going into the world and how that is like for a woman and what what experiences I've had and the realizations and the expectations you can have and what the real deal is. So yeah, I'm sharing an experience of how it's like being in the film industry as a woman and also what it takes to, to make it uh, and the mistakes that I made to not make it as big as I wanted to make it. So it's it's going to be a little bit of everything, but mostly it's going to be for young women who I would like to teach. Um, I grew up thinking that the Cinderella story was how life really was, and this book is going to be how it's not like the Cinderella story. So, so if you've 
listened to the podcast today and really loved Natasha. I want to hear more about her experiences. And all that. that book is a perfect thing to buy when it becomes available. Yes. So you'll have to let us know when it is available. And we will publicize the hell out of it. <laughs> and I have a movie that I'm doing my first comedy, Holiday Boyfriend. So it's a smaller budget, but it's my first comedy. And I'm really, really looking forward to doing a comedy, romantic comedy. Where's Ryan Gosling when you need him? <laughs> exactly. Where is he? I did my first, first, first job with him, Breaker High. He was 16. <laughs> <laughs> and he was not good looking back then. <laughs> Don't say that. Oh. We'll have letters. <laughs> oh, the backlash that was oh, going to come for this episode. So, he, he was so adorable and cute, but oh my God, I was like, he was 16 years old with the skinniest legs. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so have you got any other uh, movies that are currently due to be releasing? Uh, well, I'm going to... No, I got Fight Pride that I'm going to be shooting soon. And I'm going to be this, doing the sequel of something that just came out called Last Man... Last Man Down? And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing the sequel to that one. I end that movie. And so I'll be one of the leads in the next one. That is awesome. That is awesome. That is a hell of an impressive amount of workload that is coming up. And we want to hear about that book as soon as that is ready and it's being released. We want to have you come on so you can do a little promo on it. And, Thank uh, you. We'll get That's a shield for you. you. So, you. yeah, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you. You are a friend of Partywood and uh, you are welcome to come back at any point you want. There's one question left to ask, Steve. What's in the box? 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 I really should have turned my volume down for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just deafening myself. I've, I've not played around with any settings. Is it just me or is that louder today? That is very louder today. Yeah. I think uh, Neil's trying to break the sound barrier. I have no idea what was going on, but I've not fiddled around <laughs> with it. Okay, uh, well, what's in the box for anyone who doesn't know is the part of the show where Andy tries to tear me away from, well... Te terrible movies. Terrible movies, yeah. Um, and tries to upgrade my cinematic experience. So he's going to plunge his hand into a box full of movies that are certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and pull one out. Now, if I have seen it, then we just keep drawing out names until we find one that I haven't seen. But if I haven't seen it, then I have to go away and watch it the night before we record the next episode. So. And then give your feedback. And then give my feedback, yes. So, oh, do you know what I got for you? Go on. Have you seen the Ricky Gervais movie Ghost Town? No. Good. That's what you've got. Oh, so that means I've got ha! to sit through Ricky Gervais, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But anyway, uh, that is it for this week, Natasha. Yet again, thank you so much. We look forward to following your career. I'll hopefully get to meet up with you in Los Angeles next year if you are back there. And uh, we can have a, a good coffee and have a chat then. Thank you so much for having me on your show. By You're the way, thank you for coming on. Thank you. And um, I'm going to be in LA shooting Hollywood Boyfriend in January. So perhaps we could grab a coffee then. Definitely. Uh, I'm hoping to be there uh, not long afterwards. It depends if this 
movie of mine finally gets off the ground, which it's promising, but we shall see. Uh, in the meantime, we will see you all next week. Yes. Cool. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.